Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. Most of life changes. Mm -hmm. Most of life does not remain the same, which brings us to our series that ends tonight. John and I have had a really good time preaching this series on how the Bible works, and this is our fifth and final sermon And our co-pastors have decided together that this series has been important enough that we're going to separate it out on our website. So you could go back and look at the entire series, all five sermons. I imagine there will be a lot of people tonight who will be watching it after the fact. You can invite your friends to watch it at any point in time in the future. If you want to know exactly how we understand the Bible at left hand, watch these five sermons. So what we've acknowledged over the last five weeks is the Bible is not a rule book to keep us out of hell because we don't need a rule book to keep us out of hell. God loves us just as we are. No questions asked, no changes demanded. The Bible is not a rule book to keep us out of hell. The Bible is also not an encyclopedia of facts. And oh, how hard the conservative church has worked over the last 500 years to make that so, trying to explain that the earth is only 6,000 years old instead of 14 billion, that the earth was created in the seven 24-hour days. The Bible is not an encyclopedia of facts. What is it? It's a history. It's a history of how the people of Israel understood their relationship with God and how the followers of Jesus in the first 100 years after the birth of Jesus understood their relationship with God. And it's also a history of how they understood God. Initially, Israel saw God as one God among many, but a better God than the rest. Of course, every group of people had that own view of their own God, that their God was better than the rest. The God of Israel, they thought, was jealous and angry. And as time went by, they thought that God demanded sacrifices. And so they offered sacrifices to that God throughout the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, there's a major change in their understanding. They still believe that God demanded sacrifices, but now they thought God offered the sacrifice himself. He gave you the sacrifice that you needed to offer in the person of Jesus. Of course, if you've been around with us for long, you know that's not what we teach. We teach that Jesus came to earth to show solidarity with us in our suffering, to show us that suffering is not the final word, that he did not have to come as a sacrifice. But that was a common understanding of God. 
Last week, John finished up the Old Testament, how people saw scripture in the Old Testament, and he talked about the four Gospels. And in the four Gospels, you have four very different stories written by four different people to four different audiences. So they record all kinds of different things, and the things they recorded didn't always agree with one another. And as John told us, throughout the history of Israel and the time of Jesus, people were constantly reinterpreting what previous generations had thought. Jesus himself did that, saying often, it has been said, but I say to you, doing the reinterpretation right there on the spot, taking Hebrew scriptures and reinterpreting them for a common age. Well, today we're going to look at the last 23 books of the New Testament. Two of them are not letters. The book of Acts is a history book. The book of Revelation is a mystical book. Seems more comfortable with uh, the ideas maybe of, um, of a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst like Carl Jung more than the Apostle John. But you know, when you think about it, the Gospel of John also had a mystical feel to it. The other 21 letters of the New Testament are just that, letters, most of them written by Paul to specific groups of people. So when we read these 21 letters, let's be honest, we're reading somebody else's mail. And it is difficult and dangerous to read someone else's mail. So let's say I lived in Brooklyn and I wrote a letter to another Brooklyn resident. And I said, yesterday, I took the F train into New York. You would read that and you would think, well, I'm not sure what the F train is. I know there's an F subway, but well, maybe there's also an F train. And well, you would actually have to figure out that New Yorkers never call a subway a subway. The subway's called a train and sure enough, I would have taken the F train. But you would think to yourself, wait a minute, you're already in New York if you're in Brooklyn. So you took the train to New York? Well, actually, if you live in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, or the Bronx, New York is what you call Manhattan. You don't call the rest of New York. You don't call your boroughs New York. New York is reserved just for Manhattan. So what I would be saying in that letter is, I took the F subway train into Manhattan. If you don't understand that, you're not gonna understand my letter. The problem of reading somebody else's mail. Or let's say that I'm writing to someone else who lived on Long Island like I did for 35 years. And I say, yeah, yesterday I took the LIE, capitalized, into the city. And you would think to yourself, well, I guess she took a great big lie into some city. Well, if you're from New York, you know the LIE is the Long Island Expressway. It's technically called Interstate 495. I've never heard it called Interstate 495 once in my life. We just call it the LIE. And the city? Well, that's Manhattan. You say, wait a minute, I thought you just said New York is Manhattan. Well, New York is Manhattan if you live in the Bronx, Brooklyn, Staten Island, or Queens. But if you live on Long Island, well, now the city is Manhattan. You see the problem of reading other people's mail. So that's one of the problems we have when we're trying to understand the New Testament letters. They were written to another group of people in another time. We also find that over the last 2,000 years, those letters, too, have been reinterpreted, just as the people of God have always been reinterpreting earlier scriptural understandings. So we're going to look at three subjects that Paul talks about in his letters, all of them at different stages of reinterpretation today. The first is the subject of slavery. And both the Hebrew scriptures 
and the New Testament taught that slavery was fine. In fact, Paul said in his letter to the church at Ephesus that slaves should obey their masters with fear and trembling. Yeah, the Bible says slavery's okay. I mean, it's a slam dunk if you want to argue that. It clearly says slavery is okay. But then even Paul at that time had his own doubts about it all. Yes, slavery was common in that day. But in his letter to the church at Galatia, he said God sees slaves and free people as equal as the same. Most people of the day would not have believed that. So Paul's even in disagreement with himself on the subject. But that unfortunate passage in Ephesians was used for hundreds of years to justify slavery in America. Now that's one subject that has been completely and utterly changed, reinterpreted for modern times. You will not find any Christians anywhere on earth who will today say that slavery is all right. We've reinterpreted that understanding of Scripture. But there's actually another and I think even deeper problem. Yes, one of the problems is that people think that the Bible is a rule book to keep us out of hell. Another problem is that the people think the Bible is an encyclopedia of facts. But there's a third problem we've not talked about yet. And that's the fact that many, many people, particularly conservative Christians, evangelicals, and fundamental, fundamentalists, believe that the Bible is a book of timeless truths about God. Now, it's not. It's a history of how people at the time understood their relationship with God and how they at the time understood God. It is not a book of timeless truths about God. But if you see the Bible as a book of timeless truths about God, you're going to have a very different interpretation of Scripture. Let's just take that subject of slavery. If you see the Bible as timeless truths about God, well, then at some point in time, apparently God thought slavery was okay. In fact, at some point in time, God had a most favored nation, the nation of Israel. And if once upon a time God had a most favored nation and the Bible is a book of timeless truths about God, well then why wouldn't we believe that today God has a most favored nation? Why wouldn't we believe today that God still would be a God who would say, oh yeah, slavery wasn't totally bad. And if in fact the Bible is a book of timeless truths about God and God does have a most favored nation today, guess who it is? It's white America. That's who it is. Systemic racism and white supremacy find their rootedness in conservative views of Christianity. That's why you see so often ideas associated with racism, systemic racism and white supremacy beginning in very conservative rural churches. If you believe the Bible is a book of timeless truths about God, you believe God plays favorites with some groups of people over other groups of people. And you still believe that he thinks some people are better than others because some people at some point in time should have been enslaved to others. A major problem in seeing the Bible as a book of timeless truths, it's not. It's a history of how the people at the time understood their relationship with God subject to reinterpretation. It should be reinterpreted on the subject of slavery. God is not accepting of it. 
it also should be reinterpreted on the notion that God has a most favored nation. He no longer has a most favored nation, not Israel, not the United States, not the church. God's favored nation now is all nations and all people. Now let's move on to the second subject. The second subject is women. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, said women should stay silent in the church and should wait until they get home and ask their husbands to interpret what's been spoken in church. Uh-huh, it's right there in the Bible. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, he says the man is the head of the wife. Now that term does actually not mean person in charge of. That's the good news. The bad news is it means source of. So apparently he thinks sperm is more important than egg. Undoubtedly that was a misogynistic age because it was a paternalistic age because Christianity and virtually all of the desert religions are patriarchal religions. They are male-led religions. And so that teaching that women are supposed to be quiet at church, that men are in charge of women at church at home, and by extrapolation everywhere else in society, still is with us today. And it's not been reinterpreted by a majority of Christians. It's been reinterpreted by the mainline Protestant world and by the more liberal Catholic world, but not by any of the conservative religions, not by the desert religions and their fundamentalist forms. All of those say that men are more important than women and should be in charge of women. Did you know that in 28 states of the United States, the major religious teaching is that men are supposed to be in charge of women? This is so hard for people on the coasts to understand because on the coast, particularly the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest, Christianity does not have that much power in the culture at large. The rest of the nation, not so much. 28 states, the major teaching is that men should be in charge of women and should earn more than women, I guess. There's no other explanation for why white women earn 79 cents on the dollar of what men earn. Black women, 64 cents of the dollar. Native American women, 59 cents on the dollar. Hispanic American women, 54 cents on the dollar. You know, in the evangelical world, the average male pastor makes 80 cents on the dollar. Or, or 100, the average female pastor earns 80 cents on the dollar of what the average male pastor earns. And yes, we're not exempt from that view right here in the state of Colorado. Here in Boulder County, liberal Boulder County, take a look at the four of the largest churches in the county. None of the four have a woman who's called a pastor. None of the four have a woman preaching on a regular basis. None of the four have a woman as a lead pastor. And three of the four do not have women on leadership councils or elderships or boards. It is still permeating our culture and deeply within our culture, this misogyny that needs badly to be reinterpreted for common times, for today. Unfortunately, we're still back in that view that says men are supposed to be in charge of the church. That's a view that's badly in need of reinterpretation. But then we go to the third subject I want to look at where 
one thing is said that is now being reinterpreted. In his letter to the church at Rome, Paul said that relationships that are gay, sexual relationships between two men or two women are wrong. But this is where you've really got to understand the context even of the day, the difference between living in Brooklyn and Long Island and somewhere else in the nation. When he talks about that, you have to understand that at that time, virtually all educated people thought that everybody was cisgender and everybody was straight. There was no understanding of sexual identity or gender identity. It was also commonly understood that the only gay relationships were of adult men with boys, something that nobody's going to be accepting of in any age, time, or period. So no, when he says that, he's not talking about the same thing we're talking about today, and that is, in fact, something being rapidly reinterpreted today. So that just 12 years ago, only 26% of evangelicals thought it was all right for gay people to be in sexual relationships with each other. But by the time we get to 2017, nine years later, that's up to 36% and 51% of millennials. And now the numbers are even higher. I don't think it's going to be all that long before we find the majority of even conservative Christians believe that consensual gay relationships are just fine. In fact, I believe we're going to have a reinterpretation on that issue before we have a reinterpretation on the issue of women or in the issue of systemic racism or white supremacy. Really, I think that's true. Why? Because Christianity is still a patriarchal religion. And in its conservative expressions, it's still men who are in charge. And which of those three major topics could they switch their view and not have to give up a lot of power? Gay population is 3 to 5% of the population. 0.58% of the population is transgender. So yeah, they can make adjustments on that issue without having to give up their power. But if they actually reinterpret what the Bible says about women, oh, well, now all of these men are going to have to give up their power. They don't want to do that. Take a look at the 100 largest churches in the U.S. All 100 have a man as their lead pastor. 93 of them are white. So if we give up the notion that systemic racism is the biggest problem of our nation, if we accept the reality of that, oh, well, now we're going to have to give up something if we happen to be a white man in charge of a church somewhere. So, yeah, I think we're going to see more change more rapidly on the LGBTQ issue than we are on white supremacy, systemic racism, and equality for women. It's sad, but it's true. One other thing we want to say, though, yes, it's true. We will and we will continue to reinterpret those New Testament letters as we try to understand that we're reading someone else's mail. But one more thing I want to say. Whether we're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, there is, in fact, one section of Scripture that takes precedence over all others. There are four books of the Bible that take precedence over the entire Old Testament and over the other 23 books of the New Testament. What are those books? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what are the part of those books that take precedence over anything else? The words of Jesus. What did Jesus say about slavery? Did he endorse slavery? Not once ever. 
He talked about equality of humans. What about the role of women? Did Jesus endorse the notion that men should have more power than women? Well, he did have 12 male disciples. But he needed to be seen as a rabbi. And in that age, you could not be a rabbi unless you had a congregation of 12 men. So once he had that congregation of 12 men, what did he do? Spent the rest of his ministry elevating the role of women, including making Mary Magdalene one of his closest, most important leaders. Of course, it's not really recorded that way in the history of the church because it was boys who wrote those books. But Mary Magdalene was in fact probably closer to Jesus than Peter, James, and John. He elevated the role of women. Not once did he say anything negative about gay relationships. In fact, he spoke about people who were unusual sexually in that time, people called eunuchs. There were some who'd been castrated forcefully because they were slaves. There were others who were born that way. Who was he referring to there? No question he's referring to intersex people, probably also referring to transgender people, and quite possibly referring to gay people. When in doubt, what did Jesus say? Jesus did nothing, nothing that would support white supremacy. He said everything that would challenge systemic racism. He said nothing that would be against the LGBTQ population and said everything about equal rights for all people. He said nothing about diminishing the role of women and said everything about the fact that we are all equal in the eyes of God. When in doubt, what did Jesus say? That's why his words are in red. And that's why I guess you could say we're a red letter Christian church. The letters, the words of Jesus will always be used by us to interpret every other part of scripture. The Bible, it's a wonderful history book. And a book of wisdom teaches us much about how to live. The words of Jesus, <laughs> that, those words, that's the hill you die on. God, thank you for giving us your word. Not, not, not this encyclopedia of facts, not this rule book, not this book that tells timeless truths about you but a history of how your people have always been trying to work to please you, to love you, to love their neighbor and love themselves. Thank you for that book and all the marvelous personalities in it and the things they teach us. And the good news contained therein that your son Jesus wants us to love you, him, our neighbor, and ourselves. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.